3 o'clock, I again took post. Very dark and rainy. I had resumed my station about half an hour when I heard a faint whistle, not far from William Brown's post, as I supposed. He called to me, but I did not think it prudent to answer. However, after he had called several times, I answered, Hello! He says, Look sharp! The usual word of caution between sentinels. I kneeled down with my gun on a charge. It was so very dark that no object could be discerned within three feet of me, and I could hear nothing except the rustling noise occasioned by the falling rain among the bushes. At this time, Brown, being much alarmed, very imprudently left his post and came towards me. I heard light footsteps, presented my gun, and should have fired upon him had he not that moment spoke, much agitated. Brigham, let us fire and run in. You may depend on it, there are Indians in the bushes. I told him not to fire yet, for fear that we should give a false alarm. While we were standing together, something struck in the brush near us, I suppose an arrow. We were both frightened and run in without firing, the Indians close up our heels. We passed swiftly by Captain Barton's tents. I should afterwards fell in with Captain Wilson's company of militia, where I received a wound, which broke my right arm. Private William Brigham, surviving sentry from Tippecanoe, November 1811. The Battle of Tippecanoe occupies an odd space in American history. Fought, as we've heard, in November 1811 in the Indiana Territory. Is it the first battle of the War of 1812, nearly eight months before the official declaration? Or a reignition of the Northwest Indian Wars, the Sixty Years' War for the Great Lakes? Or is it a personal conflict between two steel-faced leaders at the head of clashing cultures, Tenskwatawa, and by extension Tecumseh, and William Henry Harrison? But it is not the Battle of Tippecanoe we are after today, but what Private Brigham was doing out there, standing a sentinel post in the pouring rain. An advanced alarm system, a thin security net around an encamped army, is an important element to success in all military history, and the War of 1812 is no exception. Within the surviving accounts we do have from the lower ranks, many will make note of guard or picket duties, as this would have offered relief from the mundanity of the usual rigors of drill and army life and therefore worth note. For many, it could prove to be the most terrifying time of their service. The loneliest episode, 
or simply the most boring stretch they had to endure, coupled perhaps with the best sleep they had had in ages. Regardless, all of these provide us, looking back, such a rich tapestry to behold, admire, and study in the story of the frontier and the War of 1812. So today, you have been ordered on guard duty. And for this, we will spend most of our time out in the old Northwest, a little closer to our base here at the foot of the rapids than previous weeks. And a cautionary word, some may find the language used in the diary entries today slightly offensive and politically incorrect. This report we've heard from Private Brigham is an interesting one. Sergeant Montgomery Orr of Barton's company, 4th U.S. Infantry, claims to have heard this conversation between Sentinels in his tent as he lay in the darkness. Given the fact that it was raining, the Sentinels must have been extremely close to the perimeter of the army camp to be heard, which sheds some really interesting light on positioning of the Sentinels at this time and at the battle. And Private Brigham must have told his story rather quickly. The wound that he received to his arm would ache on the right side of his body another 27 days before it took his life. Our encampment formed a hollow square with the front upon the river which ran here from southeast to northwest. The front was occupied by Alexander's rifles on the left and the blues in the center. I was on guard at Butler's station and towards morning, observing an unusual quantity of dogs running about, remarked to Captain Butler that I suspected the Indians were coming in force. He gave orders to keep a sharp lookout. A few moments after, we were aroused by a shot from the sentinel posted at the southeastern angle near the bank of the river, who declared he had fired at the head of an Indian who was peeping over the bank. The camp was now aroused, the reveille beaten. The moon had set, and it was near an hour to daybreak, when a Mr. Davis and myself, who were posted on the river before our quarters, were whispering of the possibility of an Indian attack. He was in very ill humor and remarked, we have marched a hundred miles into the wilderness through snow and sleet, half leg deep in the bleak month of December with nothing but what we had carried on our backs. And now what is worse, we shall have to march back without any fight at all. Scarcely had he ended his remarks when a ball whistled over our heads and the next instant a yell pervaded the forest as if all the fiends of the lower region had been loosed upon us. There they are now, was his exultant exclamation, and the next moment we were forming in line. It appears that the Indians in force had made a sudden and furious attack. A sentinel, hearing someone approach, challenged, Who comes there? Potawatomi, goddamn you, was the reply in good English. With a shot aimed at him, which missed, the sentinel returned the shot with effect and made his escape into the camp. Private Nathaniel Vernon, Pittsburgh Blues. Nathaniel Vernon, describing his role 
and a century's duty at the Battle of Mississinawa in 1812. An engagement I often confuse in my mind with Tippecanoe when trying to recall tactical details and first-hand accounts. There are a number of similarities. They were both fought in the Indiana Territory, both coming late in the year, both featuring a pre-dawn attack by Native American Indians, with militia and mounted rifles fumbling inside a confused encampment trying to hold the line. One can see, though, with our mind's eye, how the practice usually worked. An army on campaign or in woodland fortifications would make camp in the evening, typically forming a square for defense, often anchored on a geographic feature like a river or ravine to aid in the defensibility of their position. Rude and hastily constructed breastworks of brush and timber would be thrown up around them. Sentries, the far-sighted eyes of the army, would individually reach out into the darkness from maybe 50 out to 300 yards or so from the lines, maybe further. If these watchmen encountered or espied something or someone, they would be challenged. The familiar, who goes there, from fiction. If the unknown individual did not provide the proper watchword in response to the challenging or made no response at all, they could be fired on. Typically, two shots heard from the sentries would constitute a formal alarm, and the troops would be called two arms by the musicians. False alarms were extremely common, as nervous young men might be tricked by an overactive imagination in the dark. This was of great annoyance to sleeping soldiers, as we shall see, and sentries giving false alarms could be questioned and punished. On the night of the 21st, there were several guns fired in success by the Sentinels. It being about 9 o'clock, no individual could easy believe otherwise, but that it was the beginning of a formidable attack by the Indians. Every man took hold of his arms and ran with joy, thinking an opportunity was now offering to avenge himself of the savage enemies of his country. In a few minutes' time, every line was arrayed in battle and rushed on to meet that enemy. But... On right examination, no enemies were found. However, two or three sentinels asserted that several men were seen by them outside the line, and they did not answer when hailed, and fired on them comfortable with their orders. On the 22nd, the army was paraded a hollow square. Major Nye read some orders from the general. Among other things, the general thanked the army for their dexterous conduct in the alarm on the evening before stating that he had every reason to place great confidence in the army. Nathan Newsom. We desire to mention that a bad habit at this time actuates the guard. Guns are fired almost every night by the sentinels at something or other, supposed by them, as they say, to be Indians spying on our situation. This conduct has a bad effect on the wakefulness of the army. Nathan Newsom, Ohio Militia. About nine o'clock on the evening of the 11th, we were alarmed by a gun being fired. The brigade was paraded in front of their tents, but finding the alarm to be false, they were dismissed. 
on the evening of the 28th, about dark, we were alarmed by a gunfire. We immediately formed in line of battle. The alarm was found to be false, and we were dismissed. Immediately, another gun was fired, which caused a false alarm. A third shot was fired, which likewise was false. Those that fired the guns were put under guard until they could be tried by court-martial. December 31, at half past nine, we were alarmed by several guns firing. The drums immediately beat two arms. The troops were formed in line of battle, about 30 paces in front of their tents. The fires were all immediately extinguished. We remained under arms half an hour. But finding the alarms to be false, we were dismissed and retired to our tents. Greenberry Keene, Pennsylvania Militia. We have now heard at least two references to the drums beating two arms. Two arms was a duty call played by the musicians of the army to get the men up, equipped, in line, and prepared for battle rapidly. This would have been done when the sentries gave the alarm. I'd like to listen to this call now to give you a little more depth, a richer experience. But I'd like you to listen with a critical ear. If you were lying in a wet tent at night, would this quick tune inspire you to leap up, gird your loins, and give a triumphant huzzah? I ask this critical question because personally, I always thought that two arms should be more stirring. The armies of history failed here to utilize music to its full, impactful potential. This to me sounds more like a ringtone than the ignition of a battle I'm supposed to be inspired to fight. I am H.O. <laughs> Seeking out some official wording on guard duty and sentry work, we now look inside the Army and examine the general orders for Fort Meigs at the foot of the rapids in the spring and summer of 1813, when this site was the headquarters of the Northwestern Army. Garrison orders! Fort Meigs, April 2nd, 1813. The Sentinels will be placed under the direction of the officer of the day and the usual orders distributed by him. The sentinels are prohibited the use of fire while on their posts. They will constantly walk on their posts and are on no account to sit down. Non-commissioned officers and soldiers are prohibited from passing the chain of sentinels with their arms either by day or night or of crossing the river without the permission of the commanding officer and are prohibited from firing their arms in or about the camp without the like permission. Headquarters, Camp Megs, April 16th, 1813. General orders, galleries for all the sentinels 
will be immediately fixed. And as soon as it is done, the Sentinels must be made to call out all's well every 15 minutes to be commenced by the Sentinels placed near the main guard and proceeding along the front of the line will be repeated in succession until it passes round the whole encampment. In the event of the alarm, the men must be made to take their posts without noise and with the greatest order. General Orders, July 21st. 1813, at all hours and in discharge of every duty, the troops will have with them their arms, ammunition, etc., and will in no instance fail to lie upon their arms at night. Just a quick examination of these practices. The sentinels are prohibited from the use of fire while on their posts. This makes sense, as staring into a fire would destroy the night vision of the guard, and fire has that intoxicating effect of lulling one's mind into deep-dwelling internal thoughts. Though I do remember reading of fire being used to advantage by the guard, as one looks across a stretch to the next guard fire, if anyone be silhouetted against that light, you know someone has crossed the line. However. I could not unearth those passages while doing research for this program, so I cannot state them as fact here and now. They will constantly walk on their posts and are on no account to sit down. This no doubt being designed to keep men awake at their gallery. Soldiers are prohibited from firing their arms in or about the camp. Certainly the firing of a weapon would make the men edgy and could easily be mistaken as an alarm. Calling out, all's well every 15 minutes, it's amazing anyone got any sleep. And lastly, in no instance fail to lie upon their arms at night. If in the field, especially if tents had not been brought up from the baggage train and the men were sleeping under the stars, it might be appropriate to sleep with their firearms underneath them in order to keep them dry. One would not want to do this at Fort Meigs in April, as you'd likely have an inch or two of water in your tent, thereby defeating the purpose. But being able to grab and make the weapon ready in an instance is what the command staff is after here. I had always thought that the duty of the sentry in the face of a creeping or advancing enemy was basically to die loudly, thereby alerting the army to the position of the attacking foe. But certain documents coming from the British lines suggest quite the opposite. This coming from Army Headquarters in Montreal. And note how often the word advanced is used. General Orders, Headquarters, Montreal, July 4th, 1814. It is never expected of advanced centuries, and but seldom of advanced posts, that they can materially check or retard the advance of the enemy. They are therefore to be cautious, not unnecessarily, to sacrifice themselves in vain attempts. They are to retire as slowly as they can, consistent with the ultimate security of their retreat, keeping up a constant fire for the double purpose of checking the enemy 
and giving intelligence of his advance. The most advanced centuries fall back upon each other in succession, taking advantage of every favorable position to gall the enemy in his advance, for which purpose every officer ought to make himself perfectly acquainted with the country he has to occupy. Edward Baines, Adjutant General. Six. I counted six times. But a quick Google search while I was reading this yielded that the first thesaurus was not published until 1852. So, Adjutant General Baines gets a pass, at least from this fort. But the point is that armies did not want their guards swallowed up in heroics. Sentries were not to die loudly in some fruitless skirmish. Intelligence was to be gathered, yes, while keeping the ranks full and the casualty list empty. They court-martialed one of Langhorne's company by the name of Edwards for going to sleep on his post when on guard. On his trial, he observed to the officers that if he was not afraid to go to sleep out there on his post, that they need not be afraid to sleep in the camp. It was the third time that he had been caught asleep on his post, and nothing but the influence of his captain saved him from being shot. William B. Northcutt. The next night, it fell to my lot to go on guard. And when I started out to go to the guard fire, I told my messmates to go to bed and to go to sleep, for there should be no false alarms that night when I was on post. My time to go on duty was the second relief, and the sentinel that I had to relieve was fast asleep, and I took his place knowing that he had been asleep which made me look out with all the eyes that I had. I had not stood there long before I saw in the head of the hollow right before me something moving towards me. I sprung the triggers of my gun to be ready to shoot if an enemy approached, and when I set my triggers, I heard two more sentinels, one to my right and the other to my left, set theirs. The mainspring of our locks were so strong that they could be heard to set a good ways off. Well, when I heard their locks set, thinks I, there is two of you not asleep anyhow. And when we came in off the guard, we three had the same tale to tell. I kept watching the object, thinking about what I had told the boys in camp about false alarms. When I heard an owl hollow right opposite me, and another one answer it right back of the encampment. Then I remembered hearing old Indian fighters talking about them hollowing like owls. I then had it all fixed up that they were surrounding of the camp and giving one another the signal by the owl's hollow, and the object before me was one of their spies. He kept coming gradually towards me, and I should certainly have fired had it not been for the promise I made to the boys. I was determined to let him get close to me before I shot to make a sure shoot. And when that occurred, I... <laughs> it turned out just to be an old horse that had got out of camp 
and was browsing his way back. <laughs> William B. Northcutt, Kentucky Militia. Oh, get your horse ass back to camp. We lay on our arms for ten nights previous to the battle, and had more or less alarms every night, and some in the daytime. Men passing to and from our camp to others were frequently killed or wounded by the prowling Indians. Among the exciting scenes and alarms of these first ten days were some ludicrous ones. The sentinels were to hail once, and if no answer came, to fire. One night a sentinel on the main line hearing a noise in the brush hailed, then fired, and the next hearing the hail and the gun was on the alert, and hearing something in the brush hailed and fired almost at the same instant, and so it went along the line till eight or ten guns went off in quick succession. At the sound of the first gun, every man in camp sprang to his place at the breastwork, and from hearing so many guns, we expected the onslaught at once, but silence ensued. Scouts scoured the ground, and the conclusion was that a deer had caused all the trouble. At another time, under similar circumstances, an ox that had strayed away from the cattle guard was shot down by the sentinel. But the most singular case occurred in the middle of the daytime. The sentinel fired without healing. It was supposed the enemy must surely be in sight, and every man was instantly at his post. The drums beat to arms, and all was excitement, expected now a fight in good earnest. But soon the word dismiss came around, and when the officer of the day and the general himself reached the spot, the sentinel said that he saw something black moving through the underbrush, which he thought was an Indian trying to get a shot at him, and it was thought it best and safest to take the first chance himself, and so blazed away. On the sergeant of the guard going to the place pointed out, well, he found a large turkey, and wild turkeys being nearly black, the general commended the sentinel for his caution, and said he should have the turkey for his dinner. Some of the boys thought it more than likely that the sentinel could, yes, distinguish between a turkey and an Indian in broad daylight, but coveting a good dinner took that method to obtain it, trusting to stratagem for an excuse, in which he succeeded. Allowing that it was so, it was, no doubt, better to let it pass than to deter a sentinel from firing when there was danger, and thus expose his life and the army to a stratagem of the enemy. Sergeant Alfred Brunson, 27th U.S. Infantry. We've had some laughs just now. But I need remind you that as well as fun, guarding the army could be deadly business. Not only was the line of sentries designed to keep the enemy out, but also the forlorn soldier of the army within. This being true of the United States and the British Army regulars. February 25th. General Harrison summoned the officers to headquarters and informed them that the night before, four of our regulars had deserted. He desired each officer to be more strict with the sentinels while on post, that no two should be seen talking together, 
if the officer of the guard knew it and did not punish them, that he should be arrested. Greenberry Keen. There was a sentry posted near the wood to prevent any of the men entering it, and we had to go near the sentry for water. One of the artillerymen went on prehense of fetching some water and went to the sentry's backwards turn. He saw it into the wood for the purpose of deserting, and the sentry, one of my regiment, shot him. The ball entered his body, and the wound proved mortal. He was brought into the barracks. His captain came into the barracks to see him. The dying man charged him with being the cause of what had happened. The captain left for room, and he died shortly thereafter. Shadrach Byfield, 41st Regiment of Foot. We will part today with the most poignant words of any Lonely Watch stood. Perhaps the most pointed words in the entirety of the War of 1812. These coming from a midnight post stood right here at the foot of the rapids. Private Alfred Lorraine reflecting on the first siege of Fort Meigs. After the hasty retreat of the enemy, a detachment was sent in to scour the woods and gather up the dead. They brought in a great number and spread them out before one of the gates. They had been abused and mutilated in a most shocking manner. And about midnight, it fell to my lot to stand a lonely sentinel over this ghastly, silent congregation. The stars shone sufficiently bright to give effect to the scene. As I looked down upon them, I became more astonished at myself than any other part of the creation. I felt truly like an apostate from human nature. A few months before, I could not feel comfortable in the idea of sleeping alone. The sight of a corpse could once afford me subject matter of trembling for weeks to come. Even in the black swamp, I had a tear to spare to the expiring pack horse. But now, at this lonely hour, while all the army were wrapped in sleep, except a few widely scattered sentinels, I could look down at this ghastly, disfigured group, without even a tremor stealing over my nerves. I found that my heart had become wretchedly hardened by the scenes, the sufferings, and conflicts of war. What particularly afflicted me was, I thought that all the social feelings and sympathies of my soul were clean gone forever, that I should no more feel with those who feel, nor weep with those who weep.